our talk today, as you can see, is titled um, Choreographing Lived Experience, the stories the dancing bodies tell. By way of introduction, um, this is not a metaphor, um, is a, a phrase that came up in one of our discussions when we were thinking about the role of dance in understanding the body. And um, it really seemed to us like it's almost too easy to think of dance symbolically, whereas we were really trying to get at something that went beyond what a movement might stand for, looking at the movement itself as a thing in itself. And so the body is, an, is the existential ground of culture, says Thomas Chordas. Uh, many of us know that um, saying, but what does it actually mean? Chordas was inspired by Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology in formulating the paradigm of embodiment for which he is known. And um, this is a paradigm that very much served as an inspiration um, for us. It has definitely been an inspiration in my previous work. And um, just as a, by way of a very, very quick glossing over what embodiment is, we conceptualize it as standing for subjective and intersubjective experience. So if we think about the bodies being in the world, we're thinking about the relationship of self with self, self with other, and self with space. But the body is not merely a site for embodied metaphors, as Cesalo might have termed it. Its feelings and movements do not simply symbolize or somatize cognitive, social, or emotional phenomena. But rather, we think of embodiment as encompassing the whole of the person's lived sensory and perceptual being. So how do we access embodied experience in anthropology? Um, one of the common ways of doing that um, has been to use narrative. And narrative is very useful. I've used narrative extensively in my own research. <coughs> and specifically in medical anthropology, narrative has been used to make some sense of often incohate experience. In writing others' sensory reminiscences, or perhaps their sensory biographies or stories, we come to an understanding of how people verbalize experience, what words they deploy in their own sense-making, and communicative processes, which lexicons or jargons loom large. But words capture experience and its remembrances only partially in the interview context, particularly when sensation needs to be translated into an expression almost immediately. And if we challenge the postmodern idea that language makes the world, that words are everything, the makings of reality, then the eliciting of verbal stories to capture experience is, with its almost exclusive focus on language, alongside, obviously, attendant gestures and facial expressions, a methodology that leaves narratives of experience incomplete. So in this project, we explored how bringing focus back to the sensory can help us work out new vocabularies for experience through the project's eight workshop sessions, which allow time and space for reflection and expression, we aim to develop more experience-near ways of constructing and communicating narratives of illness and recovery. More specifically for our topic, the development of this methodology is particularly important for research concerning eating disorders. So for logistical and ethical reasons, anthropologists have a limited capacity to act as participant observers in the everyday lives of people with eating disorders. And clinical settings such as inpatient units provide a very particular window into embodied experience and comportment, which are largely shaped by institutional strictures and regulations of the body. But more crucially, we were not 
interested in observing the doing of eating disorders as much as we were interested in understanding embodied experiences and the reminiscences thereof. If we observe the daily rituals of eating disorders, that would get us as far as practice. But what intrigues us is the experiential realm that inheres in this practice. And experience is more difficult to access. Our project then seeks to find a different way to tell stories of the self, a way to delve into and deepen the understanding of experience by bringing to the fore the sensory elements it holds. So why use dance to understand embodied experience? Just as a little experiment, I just want you to notice your feet. Are both your feet on the floor? Can you feel the weight of your foot on the floor? Just want you to notice where your legs are, if they're crossed or if they're both straight. Just be aware of your spine, how you're sitting. How the pelvis is, is it tilted, is it twisted, is it quite square? Just be aware of your hands, are you holding something? Are your hands relaxed, do they hold tension? Just being aware of your neck, the weight of your head, the deep eye sockets, your brain and your skull. And just take a second just to notice your breathing. So it's a tiny little exercise just to bring embodiment into daily life. As Kirin said, dance isn't a metaphor. It's not merely a physical consequence of speech. It's not a symbol of some other feeling or thought. Dance is an action in itself. Dance invokes those elements of embodied experience that can be central to anthropological inquiry, with dance being quite literally a practice. It involves the shaping and expressing of each dancer's habitus, a habitus moulded through time and technique, somatic possibilities and experiential actualities. Dance, moreover, constitutes a lived experience in the here and now. While dance is inherently fluid in the dancer's sense of space and time, and while it encompasses the dancer's past and future, it always happens in the present tense. As the dancer invokes and immerses herself in other imagined real spaces and times, she also embodies these experiences in the moment. Dance then is marked by presence. It unveils embodiments through dialectics of being and creating, imagining and acting, collapsing binary divisions of mind and body, thought and feeling. But for anthropologists and dance makers, how are we to make sense of the dance? Dred Williams asks, do dancers create feeling? Is the dance itself expressing feeling? Is it both? Dance is not a metaphor. Central to our project was the understanding that dance does not replace language. Um, we didn't either cast ourselves as, uh, in the role of interpreters, deciphering the symbols of the participants' dance languages. Rather, following Williams, we posed questions, dance questions to be answered by dance. Then Karine interviewed the participants, and the participants answered our questions. The participants' answers to those questions form the core of this paper. As William suggests, by asking dancers about their intentions, we remember that the meaning of the dance resides in the dancers' experiences 
of organising, attaining, communicating and representing. As a choreographer, it was important for me to highlight the primacy of the choreographic and performative skills involved in this physical expression of experience. The participant was to become the choreographer of her own embodied experience. So for eight consecutive weeks between April and June of 2013, we gathered with the women who took part in this project in a black box studio for two weekly hours of skill building and creative dance work. The weekly sessions were followed by next-day group discussion sessions in which the participants reflected on their experiences of choreographing, dancing, performing, and observing others' performances in the studio. As the culmination of the workshop, the participants were asked to choreograph a solo based on their experience of eating disorder or related experiences thereof. The solo work comprised the core of the last three sessions. From week six to week eight, as the participants were developing their solos, I met with each participant individually for interviews that explored their narratives of illness and recovery, as well as their experiences of creating the solos. Rosie led the workshop sessions and I acted as an observant participant, meaning that I actively took part in all skill training and dance assignments, including solo and duet works in the first five weeks, and in the warm-up and cool-down exercises in all weeks. From week four onward, we were joined by Rosie's teaching assistant, Chris, a professional dancer, who took part in the dance assignments and served as an additional anchor in the room. It is important to know that we attended to the participant's safety at all times. We were aware of each participant's health issues and injuries. Skills and training were provided at every stage, and participants were encouraged to work within their own boundaries. They were never asked to push themselves or try any activity they felt uncomfortable about. When participants wanted to challenge themselves with new skills or moves, Rosie made sure to teach them on a one-on-one -on -one basis how to perform these moves safely. So I just want to give a little bit more information about the workshops and the content, because for me that's really important, um, about how we did what we did and the, the building of that from a dance practice perspective. So they took place in a neutral setting, in a non-mirrored black box studio space, and we provided the participants with notebooks, pens and fleece blankets at the beginning of the first session. They were designed to progress from week to week and develop movement and dance skills, fitness and coordination, moving into more complex creative and choreographic skills, including visualisation techniques of performance and original movement creation. In week five, we gave the participants a brief of the assignment of creating their own solo using the skills they developed in week one to four. Underlying the workshop structure was the idea was that, of that the participants were to become choreographers and makers of their own work, and not simply to respond to stimuli or to answer verbal questions. They were to become both dancers and dance makers in this project. Each session followed a similar structure of several parts. It started with an introduction, setting up of the studio or performance world, separating it from outside experiences, and also safeguarding the participants. We then continued with a full warm-up, which was adapted each week, depending on the group's dynamics, and then the session proper would begin. For each session, I assigned a task or a series of tasks, often body, space or partner-based, which would build in complexity. In the first four sessions, we focused on creating solo or duet work, formed by an informal sharing to the group. And in a change to a normal sort of choreographic dance structure, we chose to conduct reflective discussions the following day rather than immediately after performance in the studio. Uh, these sort of informal performances were followed by a cool-down, 
stretching or breathing exercises, which we close the session to prepare for exiting the studio and entering sort of real life again. Uh, Karina and I often stayed in this studio afterwards, though, um, allowing an informal space for participants who wanted to talk to us informally one-to-one afterwards. And several participants also stayed in touch with Karina through email or telephone following the sessions. Important to all the sessions were opening games and icebreakers, which participants got increasingly used to as they grew in confidence with each other and with the session structure. And as Kirin said, injury prevention was paramount, with the participants building skills slowly and at their own pace, making them feel safe in their own bodies and with a sense of personal agency. Throughout the workshops, we built the idea of the body as a reliable source of information which can be listened to and communicated to others. So there were several main ideas guided the construction of the workshop sessions. The first being that an idea of feeling pleasure or having fun using the body. So a sense of play, I suppose. That's through physically. So, so there, are, there, are, there are pleasures of being, of being lifted, of being mirrored, um, of, of being safely touched. And intellectually, um, as participants sort of discovered their bodies in, in a new way, um, for example, one participant during a body part workshop improvisation said that she discovered that my knees have a unique personality. Um, there was also, I really concentrated on a sort of greater sensory awareness, so learning to trust one's senses and to navigate a dynamic relational space. Um, and it was to also to perceive the abilities of one's own and one's others and others' bodies. I sort of talked a little bit about body parts. I, I wanted to kind of have a sort of sense of body interpretation. So developing an awareness of individual body parts as forming a whole. So, for example, going from very specific body part improvisation, building to whole body improvisation, and then sort of going from duets based on body parts into sort of duets that had much more flow and meaning into building construction from this. And the, the dancer's sort of sense of personal impact initiating their own movements in time and in space. And I also fed in quite a lot about the construction of these dances, a, a sort of that th- there is a structure to making dances and the building of these solos. We've always hi- highlighted a reinforcing of body reality. Rather than talking about the body, it's a source and focus of action in the immediate sense. And finally, towards the end, I focused on performance skills, on presence of the inward and the outward gaze on the relationship with an audience. And that sort of tests the personal habits of a performative self. Um, As we said, there were sort of five skill-building workshops, two solo rehearsals, and then uh, the final solo performance. And at the end, they performed their solos to to the group and to two invited guests who were part of my company. I'll just run through this quickly, but the first week... The theme was trust and mirroring, using mirroring techniques, so that you really gain a sort of um, interaction with another person right from the beginning, and so it sort of broke some barriers really quickly. The second week, we explored the listening body that focused a lot on improvisation, and we used some really gentle touch exercises <coughs> where working with partners, you choose whether you push in towards the touch or away, and it really helps with a kind of more three-dimensional sense of the whole body in space. Week three was the body in space, which was a much more sort of like, I suppose like it, it, was, the, it was the one where, where they really had to think about construction of space, space 
like low levels, medium levels, high levels, the space around bodies, the space between bodies, and then the space directionally through the room. They had to construct that into a solo and then create a duet from that. The fourth session was on trust, collaboration and relationships. And we started to use some kind of basic double work principles. So that's about a sort of push and pull with some Laban ideas, but also some weight bearing and sort of kind of quite interesting stuff of just being able to give your weight to, to another person. I have to say this was, this was the one sort of day where a lot of laughter kind of erupted in the room. It's kind of really some funny things happened. Week five was quite an important part for me and it was a quite a big, long, led improvisation based on the emotions. And this is something that I've been developing for about eight years in my professional practice and I use with my professional company. And it's sort of a led visualisation that uses the emotions as stimulation. The participants were really sort of... I prepared them, we went through a visualisation, there was quite a long process out of it. And that, for me, was a really interesting... There were no observers, we were all participating in this workshop. And it very much felt that sort of there was, there was a tangible emotion that affected all of us. There was a kind of group dynamic happened with that workshop that was very powerful for us all. From there, we gave the brief to create your own solo. And then the participants had warm-up and then time to work on their own solos and one-to-one time with me where I would choreographically advise them on the work that they were preparing. We also sort of introduced ideas of choreographic structure, which is a little bit like musical structure, thinking of ABA-type structures. And then we sort of also worked on performance and some sort of experiments about playing with performance with your audience so you're, you're not stuck in one mode. And then in week eight, as we said, we performed the solos that were recorded. So the focus of today's paper is what kind of knowledge? We want to explore what kinds of knowledge about the embodiment of eating disorders we can gain through dance. And we're asking, does dance allow us to access different types of knowledge about the body and about subjective and intersubjective experience? So rather than relying on our observations of the participants dancing and what their dancing conveyed to us as so-called expert audience, this paper focuses on the participants' own reflections and the experience of choreographing and dancing a solo based on their eating disorder experiences, as well as their accounts of observing the rest of the group perform their solos. These reflections were extracted from the interviews I conducted with each participant individually, as well as the discussion sessions that Rosie and I held with the group each week on the day following each dance session. So before we begin, I just want to note that all the names we use here are obviously pseudonyms, and all the lovely photographs that you're seeing are just taken from Rosie's professional work with... um, herself (laughs) in some cases, and uh, her dancers and others. So thinking of what kinds of knowledge the participants employed in choreographing their solos and what kinds of knowledge they felt the dance enabled them to convey, we're going to explore these interview extracts and discussion group quotes in more detail now. In their solo briefs, the participants were asked to create a personal and authentic work, one which expressed their embodied experience of eating disorder. We asked them to draw on the skills they developed in the first five sessions, skills that enabled them to explore movement through body parts, space, relationships, and the emotions. Yet while the participants were not asked directly to choreograph their solos with or from feelings, the centrality of feeling occurred time and again in their interviews. 
As Lauren described it in choreographing her dance, she allowed herself to feel or connect with painful embodied memories, which she told me she had numbed over the years through her eating disorder. So I'll just read out the quote. Having to express something in dance made me. I was forced to think about stuff I don't normally think about. I mean, I've, I've done quite a lot of therapy. So I've done quite a lot of the talking thing, but I think I connected with stuff in a different way. I, I actually felt stuff in myself inside me that you can't think about, but it feels different when you go back to that place and you feel that stuff again. Lauren's dance itself, she said, emanated from a strong feeling she had one morning, a feeling she knew was related to the past, which she immediately described in writing and later sought to capture in movement. This exploration was at times difficult. Lauren said that when she performed part of her solo to the group, she was suddenly overcome by a feeling of what she termed real fear, which she later understood was related to the traumatic recollections she had explored through the dance. But this working with feeling, she said, did not feel unsafe, in her words, only different. For Gia, who, like Lauren, had eating disorders for a long time, working with feeling entailed a conscious process of recollecting and evoking sensation in her body. I've gotten into a space where I feel comfortable reliving my experience, my eating disorder, in my head, and trying to even go from the head to, to you know, seep into my body so that it becomes a physical feeling, not just mental. Gia said she chose to recollect, embody, and explore five periods of her life in her solo dance. The progression of these periods was linear, but she did not conceptualize them as a narrative of what happened. Instead, Gia's focus was on her own changing sensations and perceptions from one period to the next, and how they came back into being in her body through the dance. Feeling not only provided the starting point and choreographic focus for the creation of the solo, it was also the focus of the choreographic exploration itself. For Jane, the distinction between the two was crucial. Jane said she had found it difficult, even impossible, to work from feeling. She described the experience of connecting with emotions as paralyzing. Yet feeling was at the center of her work as well. As Jane explained it, while she created her solo through reminiscences of feeling, which she kept safely at bay during the creative process. She wanted her solo to explore the very core of the feelings that underlay her eating disorder. That's really something I wanted to address in my dance, that kind of sense of powerlessness, inactivity masked by routine, masked by routine movements like walking into the supermarket. I want to capture that sense of emptiness, of a void within you that you need to fill, of a kind of gloominess, like an ache, but that also is so kind of deep that it makes you feel like you're not there, like you don't exist, like you're not a being. You lose your sense of agency into it, this kind of a void of darkness that you create within yourself and, and the loneliness, and also the way in which you push other people away. Jane Solo had little plot. While she told Karine that the progression of movement was meant to convey a transition in her own life, moving past the eating disorder. The solo's focus was on conveying embodied experience unbound by time and narrative. Like Lauren, Gia and the other participants, Jane was concerned with creating a feeling-centered body of knowledge on her eating disordered experience, one which provided a tangible alternative to plot-driven narrative and allowed for an embodied rather than discursive sense-making. 
when I started to think about, okay, how am I going to do this? And this thing that I do have all these blanks, but I also have these very specific experiences that I started noting them down and how I could express them. And that made me start feeling like I wanted to be able to put all of them in and be able to tell about, I mean, tell in the dance about all these specific memories and experiences. Eve. Eve's blanks, extensive periods of her eating disorder which she couldn't remember, were a central part to her experience. And she mentioned these blanks at some various stages of the project, um, quite early phase in the recruitment interview phase, and she was bothered by this inability to remember the entire arc of her disorder, by the leaps her memory made from one episode to another, leaps that made her feel as if she couldn't narrate what had happened to her. The dance, however, enabled her to tell her experience beyond the template offered by narrative structure, to make a whole world work with no apology for blank spaces in her story. Even I discussed the blanks, how the blanks themselves could form material for her solo. I told Eve about how I used the concept of purgatory, limbo, or nothingness to create a section in a dance work I created called There Is Hope. And we discussed the physicality of stretched time and how stretched time could feel or look. Following the discussion, I noted in my journal that Eve had began to create her solo in the studio with more energy. On watching Eve's work in progress, sharing of her solo, I wrote, Eve's performance was electric and ghostly, the absences like tension, palatable in her performance. Unlike Eve, Joyce had remembered nearly the entirety of her eating disorder and had structured her dance in linear, narrativized format. Joyce, however, said that the experience-focused quality of the dance allowed her to overcome a template that used to guide her narrative, the definition of what an eating disorder is. In her words, I think in the few times where I've described it explicitly, what I end up falling into is like trying to describe my own, my very personal like experience or personal reasons. In these sorts of terms, it would fall under the commonly like expected idea of eating disorders. Whereas with dance, it's like you, it's very difficult to fall into that feeling. You need to describe it in a certain way or describe it like how other people describe it. Because it's like, I have no way of mimicking the way that you move. It becomes very original. Like three other participants, Joyce never received professional treatment for her eating disorder. She did not have an official diagnosis and described wondering in the past whether she indeed had an eating disorder, as it did not match her expectations of what anorexia or bulimia might or should be. For Joyce, the process of creating and performing her own dance, as well as watching the other participants' solos, was validating. As she explained, there aren't like just two categories of eating disorder. Through dance, Joyce said, she could both express and observe the nuances of individual experience. There was no need to align her own eating disorder with textbook expectations so as to qualify for the so-called title. For Lauren, who had extensive contact with the medical system, the templates of what constituted eating disorders extended beyond the issue of validity. While she was clinically recognized, Lauren felt that the supposedly objective measures of her eating disorder, her body weight, her BMI, her food intake, were privileged beyond her own experience of the disorder to the extent that they stood for her eating disorder itself. 
in the medical or psychological world, it's all about what your weight was or what your BMI was and how much you are or aren't eating or what you're doing with food. But that's not really what having an eating disorder is about. It's about those really strong kind of struggles and self-loathing and just struggling to get through that people were expressing through the dance. Through the dance, Lauren said she was able to address those aspects of her experience which were often obscured and even negated by the templates provided in the medical system. The dance, she said, allowed her to capture the ambiguities of her eating disorder, the pain and the longing, the suffering and the desire, and what it meant to live through and with it in ways she could not express within the ready-made templates of food, calories, and weight. Our next theme is narrative logic versus bodily logic. With four participants who had a strong amateur dance background and three who had no dance training at all, the group had a wide range of experience with expression through movement. Yet all participants, including those who had never danced before, spoke of a logic of movement that allowed them to convey their experience. In this quote from a discussion we held with the group following the first solo work session, Alicia and Gia brought up the word logic to contrast telling and dancing their eating disorders. I think because it's not a very logical thing, it's a good thing to express and dance, because if you say, if you kind of put a factual spin on it, it doesn't make much sense. And you've got that horrendous thing where, as you say, as soon as you're telling the story you necessitate, it necessitates a logic of storytelling. So it's like, well, why did you? Like, I don't know. For Alicia, dance offered a medium through which to express the e-logic of eating disorders. Although the solo did require some structure and choreographic sense-making, the format, as she explained it, it was open-ended enough to allow for the expression of experience that might otherwise need to be clarified and made cogent in speech. And as Gia explained, the logic of storytelling in speech also required a sense-making that perhaps she was not ready to do. Dance allowed her to keep eating disordered experiences in the realm of the incohate, articulated in feeling and motion, yet raw and unencumbered by explanations. In finding the internal logic of their solos, the participants also had to come to terms with the logic of their own bodies. The links and disconnects between imagined and actualized movements came into the foreground during the solo work sessions. For Gia, this was the emergence of a bodily logic. You have an idea of what you want to do, and you do it, and your body is just kind of doing something else. So in that sense, the logic, the intellectual, or the, the conscious logic kind of gets a bit split. And then you've got this very bodily logic that kicks in. Gia later described feeling positively surprised by the movement she found in her body, by the embodied actuality of dancing the solo that she had planned. While it might have presented a constraint on the range and the style of motion each participant could embody, working with the body's own logic was part of the creative engagement. In Lauren's words, I kind of feel what I want to do, but I can't do that. So I'm up against that barrier some of the time, so trying to find ways around that, try and stay true to that feeling, to what I want to express. Lauren identified staying true to that feeling as the core of her solo project and later told me she thought of creative uses of the body and space based on the skill sessions to capture the feeling she wanted to evoke with that motion. The logic she found in her body sharpened both concept and practice. Conveying the unspeakable. 
One of the strengths of creating dance, as expressed by the participants, was enabling the expression of those aspects of the eating disorder experience which would have otherwise remained unarticulated. The unspeakable moments of eating disorder were related not to events but to sensations, sensations which were part of eating disordered embodiment and which the participants felt were inaccessible to non-eating disordered others and inexpressible through language. Reflecting on the group discussion concerning narrative versus dance, Catherine said, There are some things which, like, I've just not been able to find words for. Like, I can't ever explain what, like, a panic attack feels like in words. I find that quite difficult, and especially because the last two years I found myself sitting in a lot of doctor's offices. I've always found it quite difficult to express how it actually felt or what my actual experience, like, I can tell... People, oh, it started here, and I went to treatment here, and my weight was this, and stuff like that. But that's all kind of like stuff that has words attached to it already, and that's just fact. It doesn't actually express what it felt like, or what my experience of it was like, or how I saw it, or anything like that. Identifying the easily narrativized aspects of her eating disorder as stuff that has words attached to it already... Catherine alluded to the sense of unoriginality and collectivity that these signposts of illness conveyed. The realities that inherited in her body in experiences such as having a panic attack seemed unbridgeable by language. There were no experience near words that could allow her to transition from feeling to narrative, to reach out and express her sensory world to a listener. Later, Catherine added that she knew some people were more comfortable with speech while others were with movement, and that she belonged to the latter group. But feeling comfortable with speaking did not make all aspects of experience expressible. Gia, who said she told everyone about her eating disorder, including family, friends, colleagues and acquaintances, explained to the group that while she had told her story many times, she found that dance had captured crucial elements of her experience which she could not convey through speech. I find it also more powerful than talking. I don't know if any of you have that experience, because I've talked about my eating disorder and heard other people speaking about their eating disorders, and there's a bit of casualness about it. Whereas in dance, you kind of have this full force of reality of what would have been, could be, or is. I find that very, very disturbing to my sense of calm, and at the same time, I guess I'm one of the rare moments where I can actually be genuine or authentic. The reality of which Gia spoke contrasted what she later termed the banality of her eating disorder narrative. Gia said she was emotionally controlled whenever she spoke about her eating disorder. I tell it like a story. This control allowed Gia to be open about her eating disorder while protecting herself from vulnerability. And yet these instances of speaking about her disorder lack the authenticity which she located in feeling. Through the dance, however, Gia said that she could both feel and express the lived experience of her eating disorder, the anguish and exaltation, suffering and desire, which for her constituted her genuine reality and genuine self, otherwise obscured by words. While the participants sought authenticity, they were also mindful of an audience to express the unspeakable. Individual experience had to be translated into evocative, if still abstract, movement. When Corinne spoke with Eve about her process of choreographing the solo, 
Eve said, I noticed that in those early stages, something that kept popping up in my head was that I thought, oh, but that doesn't express the pain strongly enough. It seems to me, again, to be this kind of wanting people to see and notice and understand. For Eve, her duty as both dancer and sufferer was not only to capture authentic feeling, but to communicate it. This communication entailed the choreographing of movement to elicit visceral empathy, an embodied understanding of the pain which, throughout the years, she had never been able to speak and which, for which she had never received help nor recognition. And as she choreographed the dance, she not only sought to convey the fact of pain, but its intensity, expressing that which is inherently unspeakable. The participants held multiple roles in this project. They were choreographers, dancers, performers, but also observers. And when asked about their experiences of watching the other group members perform their solos, all participants spoke of feeling a strong sense of connection. The experience went beyond what each of the dances told. As Alicia explained, identification inherited in the movements themselves. They're very different, but there's bits I can relate to in all of them and sort of not feel like, oh, I know what they're representing, but just, I know that feeling. Like, there's a lot of people touching their skin and lots of them, which is something I do a lot, even now. Like, it's just that constant checking your body and checking it's all right. Like the other participants, Alicia did not try to guess at the individual stories that underlay each of the solos. Indeed, the participants were not exposed to one another's narratives. We did not discuss individual experiences of eating disorder with the group, only in the one-on-one -on -one interviews I held with each of the participants. The sense of connection was one that transcended similarities in narrative. It inhered in a tacit recognition of shared sensory experience, a recognition related in motion from dancer to observer. These moments of recognition were described by another partic participant as knowing she was in the right place and feeling she was not alone. While many participants cited similarities in movement motifs, the sense of embodied connection did not depend on direct likeness. Sometimes I saw something of like myself, something I related to in someone else's dance, and I was like, I never would have even expressed it that way, or I didn't know how to express that. And then I see you do that, and I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's right. The ineffable sense of that's right, which Catherine described, was one invoked by movement that could have been one's own, and yet, crucially, was not. The participants spoke of the empathy they felt for one another as they performed, an empathy that went beyond compassion to encompass a sense of the other's experience. Seeing oneself in others meant more than seeing a reflection of oneself. It meant recognizing a range of movements and movement possibilities through one's own embodied being. So what are the implications of all this? In the participants' accounts of choreographing their solos and watching others perform, they described dance as a medium through which they could communicate otherwise unspoken experience to others, as well as viscerally recognize and empathize with another's experience. With evocative immediacy and urgency, the participants engaged in embodied communication through their dances, a way of knowing through the body. This knowing, as they described it, was mediated by feeling. Feeling was at the heart of both the creative process as the participants actively invoked and engaged with embodied memories, and the dance performances themselves 
as each participant conveyed her eating disordered experience through viscerally evocative movements. Indeed, the participants used their solo choreographies to express their eating disordered experiences as feeling-centered. It was feeling which they identified as the center of experience, that which constituted their eating disordered realities and their authentic selves. Yet crucially, while the participants could state feeling in words, indeed they spoke of feelings in the interviews and in the group discussions, the intensity, sensory qualities, ambiguities, and complexities of feeling eluded words and narrative. The dance then became a medium through which the participants engaged with the unspeakable, finding new ways of expression to develop a feeling-centered body of knowledge. The creation of a feeling-centered body of knowledge, as seen in our project, opens up possibilities for further anthropological inquiry. As a medical anthropologist, the concept of embodiment, as I said in the beginning, has been centrally positioned in my own work. Yet in analyzing embodied experience, I've also faced the broader challenge with which we as anthropologists must contend. Namely, how do we, to use Uni Wikan's words, achieve resonant understandings in the field, understandings that transcend the stories we elicit, interpret, and later disseminate? More specifically, as the components that constitute our understanding of embodiment, such as resonance, empathy, and attunement, exist in abstraction, what methodologies can we effectively develop and employ to bring the body and its lived sensate experience to the foreground of our analysis? Through working with Rosie on this project, I found that creative dance work evokes those elements of embodied experience that might otherwise elude us. Dance places the body's immediate sensory engagement, its being in the world, center stage. It allows us to engage with and observe the engagement of the self with others, with space, and with oneself. It provides us with a method of studying embodied being, and, as we've explored in this paper, at the intersection of creative movement and verbal reflection, dance work allows us to bring together multiple layers of experience. I think also for me there are wider implications as well. This project really has been a true collaboration between the choreographer, dance practitioner and the anthropologist. And there's something about the nature of collaboration itself within this project. We've had to learn from one another's expertise and share our knowledge in conducting participatory workshops, eliciting responses and sharing our practice. This process will be covered in a later paper on reflexivity. This work has had an impact on my practice, on my studio practice outside of Oxford, and I've brought new skills into the dance studio in the participatory workshop environment. I think it has wider implications for the participatory arts. Participatory arts and collaborative arts have a growing place in the UK professional arts scene, and examples of best practice are being sought. I've been involved in conferences with King's College London and the Paul Hamlin Foundation. The primary focus of the art, the process and the product is important, as is a democratic system of creation. This project adds to the body of work being created and could help lead to further understanding of the delicate and sensitive nature of the collaborative art process, as opposed to therapy or health outcomes, which have differing processes and outcomes. With a strong emphasis on participatory arts and engagement, Arts Council England, number one goal, great art for everyone, it's a duty for artists to do so responsibly and in a skilled manner. 
There is a lot artists can learn from anthropologists' participant observation practice to inform their own processes. In my own work, I have a track record of working in diverse settings, such as with the military and injured soldiers, and in mental health settings. The learning from this project will aid my future planning and project building from the outset, and I see this type of work with Kareem being developed for a wide range of groups. There are a lot of other wider implications in shared learning for future groups of people. I think this builds skills and research methods. Leading from this, it's important that artists engaged in community and participatory arts have the best training and skills in order to both protect the public and make the best art. As part of my company's work, we're engaged in a three-year training programme for emerging and graduate artists, helping them develop such skills and expertise. And I see a place for anthropology in this training. And I see this as widening the fields of artistic, artistic practice. Ultimately, it's about making work that speaks to audiences and communicates others' experiences. As a choreographer, this is also about building performance works that really resonate with audiences, communicating complex research, engaging audiences in a meaningful way. Research work has a relevance for me as an artist, and making work that truly captures another's lived experience can help widen understanding in the public about complex and misunderstood conditions or positions within society. Karina and I are in the process of developing this research work into a dance theatre production for the wider public. <laughs>